Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today was a member of the crew which won Australia its first Olympic women's rowing medal at the Los Angeles Olympic Games. Since then, this former lawyer has carved out important roles as a board and leadership governance expert, a board consultant, director, writer and mediator. Our trailblazer today is Margot Foster AM. Foster, welcome to Trailblazers. It's great to chat. It's been a while. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Steph, and it's a pleasure to be here and have a chat to you this afternoon. <laughs> well, you are such a busy lady. I've been following with interest over the years. What's your main focus now? There is so much going on, and it seems like you came through all the Melbourne COVID lockdowns with flying colours. Well, I didn't mind parts of lockdown. I'm not happy that it happened, and it allowed me to regroup and, I guess, focus on what I'm now mainly spending my time on, and that is uh, my various board roles as non-executive director and my board leadership and governance training program, which is really taking off, which is fabulous. Yeah, that's going gangbusters. And uh, I want to talk to you a bit more about that in a moment. First of all, in this crazy world and with the Olympics almost upon us, it always makes me think of the, the people I know that have, have been there and done that. And you are, of course, one of an elite group of Australians that owns an Olympic medal. LA Games, Australia's first women's rowing medal in a really tight finish, edging out the Americans and the Dutch. How clear is that memory? It's very clear, actually. And although it was a, a major haze at the time, <laughs> back then, back to a slight contradiction, but back then we rode, uh, raced over 1,000 metres. So it was really just a go, go, go race. Mm. Uh, now it's 2,000 metres for everybody. And my singular memory is of finishing the race and being told by an American official in the speedboat that we'd come forth. And I can't tell you the language that came out of the boat. And uh, at that stage, we thought, uh, you know, we've come all this way and we've done all this work and we've come forth. And I have to say, I wasn't imbued with the spirit of it's uh, not the winning but taking part that counts. And um, anyway, we, we were then told we came third and all of a sudden it was worthwhile. But uh, it was a close race. Our, our cock thought we'd just got it and she was right, I'm happy to say. So standing on the... Uh, the day of getting our medals was just sensational with parents and friends in the in the uh, in the stands as well. Yeah, as an athlete, does anything compare to that feeling? It's what you spend all your time working for, hoping for, and you know, always expecting. I mean, you don't put yourself through all of that without expecting that you'll do well. Mm. Um, and I think that that's probably the same for every athlete. Some obviously who are more talented and 
and more capable than others and we just know that they're the best. But our difficulty, I suppose, if you can put it that way, is that we were together for the first time as a crew and we had no lead-up competition uh, prior to um, our first heat at the Olympic Games. And so we had no measure about how we compared to our competition. So it was really just flinging ourselves in at the deep end, throwing our hardest and seeing what's happened and, and it paid off. So very grateful. Very grateful for the opportunity yeah, well, and the experience. I say that, <laughs> Good yeah. enough. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's one of those but for moments, but back that I took up rowing uh, when at university, we wouldn't be having this conversation now. So it's amazing how making those decisions can change the trajectory of what you do and how you do it. So, yes, it, it was um, terrific and a very happy memory, although it's a very long time ago now. <laughs> no, the, the, the memory stays clear. Uh, tell me, though, you mentioned taking up rowing at university. That's seriously late to come into an elite career that takes you to an Olympics, isn't it? Well, rowing um, was first, women's rowing was first at the Olympics in 1976. So there wasn't a tradition or a history of uh, schoolgirl rowing when I was at school in the, um, in the 70s. So I went to one of the residential colleges at Melbourne Uni and I had intercollegiate women's rowing. And I was dragooned into it. I resisted and resisted until I could resist no more. And um, <laughs> that was in third year uni of my five-year course. And I took to, to like the proverbial duck and um, loved it. I suppose, I suppose it was reasonably quick turnaround, six years from mm. uh, starting to being in the Olympic team. Yeah, um, I think any Olympian would say that's uh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it was uh, no, it was good, but I I just loved it. You know, you go through moments where you think you hate it and you're not getting selected in the cruise that you think you're getting selected in, but in the end, uh, as I said before, it all worked out and it was great. Now, my rowing career spanned about ten years. I lined up for I went went to the World Championships in 1985. I uh, went to Commonwealth Games World Championships in 1986 and where we won a gold in the eighth and still remain the reigning champions because they haven't had rowing since and they never will again. Um, took 1987 off and then thought, hoped, would get selected for Seoul. Um, but the selectors in that year uh, selected no women right. at all to go to Seoul. So that was no correspondence entered into either, no court of arbitration for sport, no process resolving selection disputes and uh, so that was pretty much the end of my rowing career but I reckon it took me all of those 10 years to learn how to row properly. <laughs> well, I'm glad you nailed it in the end. <laughs> I did, I think I did. <laughs> so so why rowing over any, were you a sporty person through school? Uh, yes, I was a swimmer, a tennis player, a netballer. I came from a sporty family. My father was a dual Olympian in water polo. Mm, of course. And so sport was just sort of what we did. Uh, but as I said, rowing was just different. It was ultimate team sport. You know, a pack of individuals in a boat, but a team sport all the same. Mm. And uh, I just I just loved it. I mean, it was terrific. I found I was quite good at it. Uh, and the other... I don't know. I, I just was never quite as attracted to any other sport. I suppose 
you know, when I was at school, I used to do a lot of swimming and I thought maybe I could go to the Olympics as a swimmer, but I didn't really apply myself and it, all the timing was all wrong. So this, this presented, Rome presented a fresh opportunity as, mm. as a person in my early 20s. So, yeah, it was, the timing was great. And your teammates in that boat in Los Angeles, Karen, Robin, Susan, and the two Susans, should I say, are, are you yes. still in touch with them or was this a, a, a moment... In your in your lives, where all the planets aligned and, and your worlds collided. Ah, uh, yes, I think the I think the latter. Um, we were brought together from different states, different clubs, and melded together into one fighting unit for our uh, LA outing. So I suppose um, I've, I've seen Robin. She's been living in Alice Springs and has now moved back to Adelaide. Uh, Karen, I've seen very rarely, and she's in Sydney. And Sue Chapman Popper's here, so Sue and I catch up. And then our cox, Sue um, Brosnan, Sue Lee as she was, she sells cattle stations in the Northern Territory. So um, we're in touch as well. a group of interests and uh, (laughs) careers. I know. So we've all gone to the the four winds, I I guess, and uh, it was a case of being brought together Mm. to achieve an end. Mm. Uh, But certainly certainly have plenty of... (laughs) Yes, and certainly have plenty of rowing friends uh, broadly, you know, mm. from those games, from Melbourne Uni, from all the clubs on the riverbank and around the country. So it's it's a great group. You, you mentioned something, Margaret, that really interested me about not having any warm-up events. Now, that's quite rare these days in that you would know where you sat in the world pecking order in your sport long before mm. you get to an Olympics yes. or, or to a, a World Cup or World Championships. But the the competitors for Tokyo... Some of them are in a very similar situation. Uh, have you kind of watched with interest how all the preparations for the Tokyo Olympics are going? Oh, yes, I have. And I actually, we were asked, um, well, I, I don't know who was asked, but uh, we got a, I got a message from Rowing Australia recently to ask if I would write something uh, for the Olympians who are heading off to Tokyo in nine or ten weeks. And I actually wrote about the fact that my experience back then of no warm-up, no lead-up, no nothing, was very similar to theirs, uh, and then just went on to suggest that they just have confidence in their training, believe in themselves, don't second-guess themselves, and you can only control the controllables. Mm. Um, and I think that that's, that's all I can think of to help them, because you can't wonder about what you don't know about, and you've only got to do your best, rely on your training, and... Um, put it all on the line when you have the opportunity to do so. But I do feel for for so many because of the year of uncertainty, which we certainly didn't have uh, prior to us going away in 84. Uh, but, you know, the uncertainty from last year to this year. Some of, some people said that, you know, they've really benefited from having the training for the extra year. Uh, but others, I think, will be finding it rather disconcerting. To, yeah. to not know where they stand or how they're going or, you know, any barometer any by which they can judge themselves. Mm, and I think in some aspects, even if they're going, because as you and I are speaking, we're probably, what, seven, eight weeks away from, from those mm. games kicking off and there's still things happening around the world that means uh, events are being cancelled and, and the gut feel is that Tokyo, come hell or high water, will 
uh, go ahead. But we're not just talking uh, people who are uh, studying and doing their sport as well as studying, putting those sorts of things on hold. We're, we're looking at people who may have been going to retire in 2020. Now it's stretched yeah. out to 2021. And I think the uncertainty uh, that you spoke about around team selections is only one part of it, isn't it? The, the, the whole, yes. am I putting my yes. life on hold for nothing must really play yes. with the mental health. Oh, yes. But I think it is a really, it literally is a one day at a time thing because if you think too far ahead and start gaming all the, all, all the risks and rewards, it'll really do your head in. Um, and I guess you just sort of, as an athlete, trust in the system and hope that the system allows you to represent yourself on the on the world stage but as you say Steph the uh, portents are not getting any better for Tokyo with the uh, surging cases in Japan the opposition in Japan um, the other uh, all the, the swirling and surging around the world particularly in India possibly Africa and I guess too that 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 speaks to or begs the question of the fairness of these games and are people who are turning up from countries around the world going to have each had the benefit of the best preparation that is possible uh, given the circumstances in various countries and I just hope that the games are as fair as they can be assuming they go ahead. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Women's sport, uh, particularly when you were competing, it wasn't something you built a, a financial future on, was it? <laughs> uh, money and sport, no. And I still think that's pretty much the case for rowing and no doubt a whole lot of other sports. But it wasn't what you did it for. And uh, I certainly never put two and two together. We, we had a daily allowance of some sort, which was paid in based on the performance of the previous year's team so if your previous year's yeah I know so if your previous year's team did badly you got next to nothing we also had to do quite a lot of fundraising ourselves to send ourselves away not so much for the Olympic year which was fully funded but for other campaigns but no look I was I was fortunate I'd finished my law degree by the time I hit the big time and was working so I had an income, but others who were students and otherwise being supported by their parents, that was really, really how it, um, how it played out. Mm. Do you think uh, it's fundamentally changed? We, we do talk up the positives of how that things are looking better. How far have we come? Oh, look, I think, I think we've come a long way, but it's incremental. And certainly some sports are getting more of the limelight than others. And you look to AFLW and the rugby codes and the Matildas and the hockey roos have had, you know, great profile. But there's still a lot of sports where it's not so equal. And I think the argument about, uh, you know, more change rooms and more funding for facilities for women uh, will continue for some time. I think the profile of more women and it being a sport that's valued for what is on offer rather than in comparison to men's sport is is a significant change and I you know you hear reports of people watching AFLW and really loving the skill of the women uh, rather than perhaps a more biffo-ish approach of the men mm. not to denigrate the men of course but you know just different bodies different style and I think so long as that conversation continues and women's sport 
is recognised as worth watching because women play their sport very well is, is so important. And I always remember hearing something that's quite a truism that people watch women's sport at the Olympics because the cameras are there. They're there for men and women, so men and women's sport is watched. And I guess the cameras aren't there at so many women's events, uh, which makes it harder to watch. I think the, I think the future's looking better, but it is a slow burn. Mm, I, I think that's interesting what you say because in my career when I've worked on sports like tennis and uh, on some occasions such as the Vic Open Golf where the yes. men and the women compete side by side and it's all televised, there's just as yes. many people watching either gender. So is it just yes. a fact that we need to it, – it's availability? Well, I, I, think, I think that example that, you know, that we've both shared is, is on point, that if you've got cameras, you've got eyeballs. Mm. And people love their sport and they'll consume it in various different ways, uh, whether it's on the back page of the paper or on uh, pay, um, cable, Foxtel, KO, whatever, uh, or if it's on SBS or ABC or any other free-to-air channel, mm. if it's good sport and it's, it's promoted properly uh, and promoted as, you know, something people want to watch. You mentioned before when you were, you were talking about various pathways that people take through their, their sporting career, whether it's funded, whether it's parents and family or all those sorts of things. Mm. Uh, there's been a big push for if she can see it, she can be it. Certainly in New South Wales there has, uh, meaning that if girls can see women competing, then they then believe that they can continue through that pathway themselves and they can play their sport professionally and, and be a success. Uh, who did you have that you could look to? Well, it's interesting you say that and I, it just made me remember. Well, I don't. I suppose I've always had my father, mm. you know, who, who let me and my brother and sister sort of do, and my mother, you know, we could do anything we wanted to and we were always encouraged to to do our best i don't ever have have anybody i suppose if i thought about it when i was referring to my swimming aspirations when i was a teenager i would have had shane Gould as you know uppermost in my thinking i can be like her i want to be like her but quite right because i was also a very keen surf swimmer Okay. And I loved to body surf and be out the back with it in green for hours at a time. Anyway, I, I could never be a surf lifesaver. And because there weren't any women surf lifesavers, even though I wanted to be one. So there was no surf ski, there was no board race, mm. there was no reel, there was no nothing. And it's really interesting that I reflect at the time that I was getting really involved in, in rowing, that was the, the early start of are women's surf life saving. And I think if I'd been, you know, 10 years younger and saw that there was surf life saving for women, I could have followed that path quite easily and perhaps never got into rowing. So I guess that's a sort of a sliding doors moment by mm. virtue of age. But there were no there were no women who did it, so I didn't think I could do it. So I think seeing is believing and being. I think you're spot on there, Steph. Who do you like at the moment uh, and up-and-coming female athletes that you've, you've looked at and thought, yeah, that this is the, the, the ones that we need into the future to be able to look at and say, that's what we want to be, where we want to be? Look, I, I, I think about this the other day when uh, Sam Kerr was 
described as Australia's best athlete and or best female athlete or whatever. I think I don't comparisons are odious as the saying goes. <laughs> and I actually think that we need to put all the young women uh, who are performing exceptionally well on the same pedestal. Mm-hmm. And that's and, and recognise them for their, their achievements. And that includes Sam Kerr, that includes Ash Barty, you know, that includes the the more unsung young women out there who mm-hmm. escaping me at the moment. But um I'm just thinking of uh Annabelle Smith, mm-hmm. diver, you know, who won a bronze in, yeah. in Rio and who who's now got one opportunity in Tokyo. Uh, so there's there's a lot of women who've succeeded and are succeeding, and I think we need to celebrate them all, and to give everyone the opportunity to say I can be that person. Mm. Taylor Harris, you know, as yeah. a AFLW and a boxer, um, not so familiar with the the rugby uh, women, young golfers, but yeah, I think that there's if we treated them equally instead of saying she's the best or she's the best, because I don't think that serves. I don't mm. think that serves anyone. It's actually not the way women think about each other either. No, it's it's an external thing, isn't it? Do you think that we're just so driven by trophies and awards and and uh, accolades? Yeah, I also think it's really lazy um, reporting and journalism sometimes when someone is described as you know iconic or legendary, and they're just they're just words that are applied without any analysis, and because they're used indiscriminately, it sometimes. Feels to me as though the the performances of other people who've succeeded equally are diminished um, by the choice of language as well. Mm. It's it's interesting uh, how that works, and and I also wonder, speaking to just harking back to our uh, Olympic discussion, uh, the Olympians that go over, and I spoke to one who had never medalled, uh, if that's indeed a verb, which I'm still not sure it is. Yes, uh, <laughs> two medal, yes, prob- yes, probably not. <laughs> had ever won, had never won a medal. She said that sometimes she she was made to feel like she had failed when my perception of her situation was you were good enough to be at the Olympics. But when you're at that level, does your perspective change? Oh, yes, that's why I said before, when we were told we'd come we'd come fourth before we found out we come, we'd come third, um, it felt like failure, fourth is failure. Um, because you don't, you, yeah, you know what you've done is, is good. You go to the Olympics, it's, it's not many people do that. Um, but as I also said, you have this expectation of yourself that you will, you will achieve. And I think that that's so embedded in the way that you think and the way, the way you apply yourself to your, your hard work that anything less is not satisfactory. But it's also, Interesting that from the uh, some perspectives, only gold medalists are successful, and those who come second and third uh, are not uh, fated, shall we say, in the same way or at all in some instances. So, you know, there it depends on the eye of the beholder, I think, to, to a certain extent. But I can understand her saying that she felt like a failure. I can really understand that. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Margot Foster AM is our Trailblazer today. The AM. Margot, tell me, a member yeah. of the Order of Australia. That must mm. be uh, an incredibly exciting experience. 
Oh, it was fantastic! It was such a such a thrill to get the letter. I was I, I was in the in 2015. I got the letter. Apparently, now you get an email. So opening opening the, the envelope and saying, "Will you accept this award?" I'm like, "Becca," said, "Yes, of course I will." <laughs> Does uh, anyone thank, <laughs> thank you. Thank you very. Thank you very much. So it was uh, a lovely acknowledgement for, as the citation said, for my significant services to women. Sports leadership, I think I'm paraphrasing here, women's sports leadership, sports governance and as an elite athlete. Mm. And were they, so were they in that order? Because it's funny with all the, the hard work that goes into the other aspects of your life, it's, uh, you know, the, an Olympic medal is something that's immediately recognisable. But your experience across sports governance, across boards, and quite funny when I talk about you saying you're a former lawyer, because I think when I met you, it was like, I am a lawyer. Uh, and uh, you, you've moved on. I have moved on, but as people say, you can never be an ex-lawyer. So I, I still stuck with being a lawyer. I think in some in some circles. But it, look at that. Made uh, formed a huge part of my life. I really enjoyed much of it. I got to a point where I'd had enough of it. But what it's enabled me to do is all the um, the combination of my legal background and my board experience over. 35 years, basically since I was at uni, has put me in good stead to advise, consult and help people understand, learn about how to be the best directors they can be. I've sat through so many governance sessions in the course of my board role where I've just seen eyes glaze, head nod, pen, doodle, <laughs> that I thought there had to be a better way. So I like to think I've created a program that is a better way without conversations because that's how we learn, underpinned by some solid foundations of stuff people need to know. And we all get together and have a great time. So I'm really pleased with the um, with how, how it's all rolling out. You're very good at getting people together for a, for a good time. One of the, I think the second time yes. ever that I met you was for one of your infamous blokes lunches. How did you oh, come yes, my up? blokes lunches. How did yes. you come up with that idea? And just uh, perhaps for our listeners, uh, a rundown on exactly what is the blokes lunch. Oh, okay. Well... I'll start with the uh, the women's lunches. So some years ago, and I don't know when, remember when, because I didn't start thinking about it. But a group of us in Melbourne used to get together for random lunches. Anyway, I started organising the lunches, which then turned into quarterly lunches. And at one stage, I had a bright idea that maybe we should invite men. And so, in order to, and again, this is the sort of don't know where the idea came from. But I thought, if, if women are going to invite men to lunch, I don't want them just tapping the bloke in the next office and say, oh, come along to a lunch with me. I wanted interesting people and whatever. So I created a set of rules. Am I allowed to mention the rules? You can mention the rules. The rules are the funniest part. <laughs> so you can't be married to your date. Uh, you can't be working with your chap. Uh, you can't be related to him either. You can't be canoodling with him <laughs> and you can't be wanting to canoodle with him. <laughs> you really narrow so, down the field, right? <laughs> yes, I know. And all the blokes say, oh, well, who's, who, who's going to invite me? Um, oh, the other, the other rule is you, can, you can't bring the same bloke twice. Mm. So it keeps it very interesting. But so You'd say that's, that becomes quite a, a narrow field for, for women to look around it. But seriously, I brought a bloke that contacted me asking to go. 
Uh, this was oh, one of the Melbourne he... lunches. I did. I won't mention yes. his name, but he was on the board of oh. one of the large uh, <laughs> networks. And we ended up sitting next to Gil McLaughlin and a, an extraordinary oh, yes. table of, of people who had all wanted to be there. It was. Yes. It, it became this thing where, where the guys were actually asking for the invitation. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm just... I just before we began chatting, I got a call from my chosen venue, the MCC, to uh, confirm the date for this year's blokes lunch. So uh, you'll be getting a save the date pretty soon, Deb. Excellent. I'll start casting my eyes <laughs> yes. over every male ever known to me. But but I, I do say it's a really interesting event because I think it's probably one of the few occasions when men can't invite themselves and don't know who's going to be in the room. Mm. And uh, I think early on, a few blokes thought, oh, it's going to be Packer Sheila's having lunch. This is going to be really boring. And scheduled a plane trip at 2.30 uh, after lunch <laughs> and walked out the door and said, God, I wish I'd listened to, to my date who told me it was going to run late, long and late into the afternoon. So anyway, it's been, it's been a hell of a lot of fun. And I think, I, again, I didn't start counting the first one, but I think this year we'll be up to number 13, I think. Wow, it's a, it's extraordinary, I know. And, and I can tell I know. you that I was a guilty party of the. Uh, I had my flight booked too early, and I missed it. Lunch experience, which is a sign of a sign of so a truly you, excellent lunch. <laughs> indeed, so you'll know better for this year. I, I will indeed. Tell mm. us the other projects that you've got going, and and in boards and governance, and uh, how to talk. Oh yes, are those sorts well, of things. I, you've got I, so many so many things on the go. I do, and I, but I've always done that. You know, when I was rowing, I was working, and then I stopped rowing, and I took up board stuff and governance and bits and pieces. And I am on the board of Motorsport Australia, not because I know anything about motorsport, but Are because you a good I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did a warm lap at Phillip Island a year or so ago. Not a hot lap, a warm lap, and that was pretty fast. And I'm a vice president of Motorsport Australia, which is really exciting and that's an excellent board. I have recently become the chairman of Sports Environment Alliance which works to bring sports organisations, venues, facilities to understand best environment practices that can also save them money, uh, do the right thing by the planet and the places we play and I chair a panel for World Athletics uh, which is the election oversight panel which is focused on making sure that People who stand for election to the World Athletics Council are properly vetted, scrutinised and managed. So that's really interesting. And most recently, I was appointed to the inaugural Sports Integrity Australia Advisory Council. So, and plus I'm still on the Olympians Club of Victoria Committee. So, so I have a so few things busy. to keep me busy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, tell us, with the, the board situation, there's been a lot of discussion, certainly over the past maybe five, even ten years, about women on boards. Where do you stand yes. on that? Well, it's been quite interesting to uh, ponder this. My default position is merit. And I like to think that I have been appointed to boards when I've been the only woman on many over the years, that that's, that's the basis on which one is appointed or elected well, certainly appointed. But I think that the turnover rate on boards is so slow anyway. The role of mates and shoulder tapping continues and people naturally go with people they know and people they like, you know, so I can, under, I can understand it. But I do think that having, having targets, quotas, whatever, has worked 
and has given women who otherwise mightn't have had an opportunity the chance to shine. And I certainly know that's the um, what's happened with Motorsport Australia. I was the first woman on the board after, um, I think, first woman appointed, the second ever on the board. And out of 10 of us, and now we have four women in the space of three years, four years. So it's great. I, I, I just think giving women the opportunity through these mechanisms will change organisations for the better. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Ooh, big question, Steph. You might have some views. <laughs> I know what makes a bad well, one. <laughs> well, I know, and aren't there a lot of bad ones? So I think I think a lot comes from the chairman, and I also increasingly think that boards need to have, have, need to understand how to have conversations with each other about what their expectations of each other are, their tolerances and the degree to which they're prepared to be robust in, in their discussions without it getting personal. Now, I know that sounds like a whole lot and a whole, you know, massive contradictions in a way. But if you start from the point that everyone sitting around the board table is equal and has one vote, I think that's, that's where the conversation needs to start. I also think that you can't afford to have passengers on board. And there are, I've sat on lots of boards where people come along and they say next to nothing. They think, well, why are you here? What are you doing? Do you have a view on this? Mm. So I think it's all incumbent on everyone to perform. I think it's really important that everybody understands their their government's obligations and that they're not there for themselves, that they're there for the best interests of the organisation. And so these are all sorts of things we talk about in my in my program and how to be practical, how to practically apply, practically know what your role is. So that if, you, if you're confronted with something that's clearly contrary to what the constitution says, well, you just don't let it go through to the keeper. And you have a conversation around somebody, uh, somebody's role or conflict or whatever, that, that it is full and frank and not, not sort of shuffled sideways because it's, it's too hard. So that would be some of my reflections. I have a million stories to tell, probably as you do, about the bad um, and sometimes the ugly, and they're the ones that are sort of uppermost in your mind most of the time. Or how to prevent this happening, and why do we do this, and why aren't we doing that? So, look, as I said, how long is a piece of string, and we could have another half a day on that yeah. conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that you mm. mentioned you are the first uh, female to be in your position at Motorsport Australia, and that is a, a sport that is predominantly really being something that we attribute to the male gender yes. until yes. not that long ago, probably exclusively, only that was the, the male domain. Uh, how do you feel about women in sports governance? Some don't have such a an easy ride or a positive outcome. And uh, I think of Raylene Castle and the work that she did at, at rugby. Yet I, I wonder, did she leave with a feeling that she had achieved as much as she had? Oh, look, I think anyone who's a CEO is amazing and, you know, it's markedly different from being a director. Mm. And I, I could not, I am not CEO material at all. Couldn't, I'm basically unemployable, but that's a whole other story. Um, but, I, you know, just, just, just being in the middle, you know, you're the employee of the board and the boss of all your staff and um, such an enormous juggling act. 
And I think, um, look, I, I wouldn't presume to guess uh, how how Raylene felt about what happened at uh, Rugby Australia, but obviously it was quite torrid with a whole lot of issues arising all at the same time. And look, I, I can only imagine she did the best that she could in the circumstances that were handed to her and left with her head held high. Mm. Do you still think it's tougher for, for women in those roles? Well, I think I think the evidence is uh, demonstrating that death. You know, there's been some recent departures of women from CEO roles in, you know, national sport organisations, uh, which attests, I think, to perhaps mismatched expectations, different pressures, it's hard to know. And as you would have done, speak to people on you know, one side of the fence or the other and you'll get conflicting views. I don't know if we'll ever know the truth other than the uh, the, the statistics show that it, it is tough for women in those, those uh, CEO roles, mm. well, some women. And look, some are hanging in there and, you know, doing a great job. But I, I, look, I... I I couldn't imagine how difficult it is with all those spinning plates, different stakeholders, different demands. It must be really stuff to keep you awake at night. <laughs> yes, certainly, <laughs> dep- depending on what sport you're in as well. Uh, yes, I, I know indeed. that uh, your background, particularly uh, an Olympian and a lawyer, they're two uh, wonderfully intertwined things that that they're disparate in their their targets and their goals and the and the training. But gee, they must work well together for you in in what you do. High performance, uh, attention to detail, knowledge of a constitution. Is that what has really formed you into the the quite formidable person you've become? <laughs> um. Just made you sound really scary, Margot. Yes, I know. <laughs> well, ever since, well, yes, it's not a word with which I'm unfamiliar in its application to me. <laughs> uh, look, yes, I, and I had this conversation the other day with somebody, but, you know, I really do have my parents to thank for much of who I am because nothing was ever impossible and I was never prevented from doing anything. So they never said, but, you know, I reflect and they never said no, mm. unless it was a really stupid idea. Uh, but, you know, they just let ideas peter out or come to fruition, as the case may be, provided the support that was needed. Never never pushy, really, you know, just win <laughs> um, as a sort of baseline expectation. And, look, I, I am a competitive beastie. I like to do things well. I am an attention-to-detail person. And I like uh, plain English. I like plain language. I like making all that work in the service of uh, organisations. I like clarity. And, I, yeah, I, I like, I just, yes, I don't know. Funny, uh, 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 sort of answer <laughs> uh, But I, yes, I, I guess so. And rowing provided a real focus to my uh, sporting out, outlet that I needed. And the law is a natural was a natural fit because it you know it's a bit my humanities based mm. skills and you know I can't add up basically as I had no choice and um, so yes it's just it's it's I describe where I'm now as sort of a confluence of everything that I've done it's my sport it's my law it's my board board life and it's all just come together uh, with this I really think I've found my my sweet spot. Mm.
and I haven't regretted not being a lawyer once. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's quite interesting so how many good. how many lawyers are in sport governance. Uh, is there? Well, it's a natural. It is yeah. a natural fit because you, that's how you think. You know, you you are a, a clear thinker. One of the things I think about lawyers too is. You know, I used to do a lot of family law and I'd act for a husband or I'd act for a wife or whatever. And you always have to, and even in, in other litigation, you always have to think around corners, as in think about what could happen or what is going to be the response to to this proposition or this piece of evidence. Mm. And it makes you always curious, I suppose, about what you can do. Well, certainly for me makes me curious about what I can do to be better, make the processes better, make the board better, make the organisation better. And so people ask me, well, why, why are you on motorsport, the motorsport board, or why were you on the Gymnastics Australia board, which I was on some years ago? I bet you and were a whiz say, on the balance beam, right? <laughs> <laughs> I did go on it when I was at school, I do recall. Um, and, you know, because I don't, I don't have... I don't, and I agree, I don't have a passion for gymnastics and I don't have a passion for motorsport. But what I am really interested in is making those organisations the best that they can be through whatever contribution I can make. So I'm learning all about motorsport and what I love about motorsport, which I haven't really seen anywhere else, is how much the participants love the sport and it's just extraordinary. And that's just so, so worthwhile. But, you know, my little bit of sport knowledge, governance knowledge, legal knowledge, you know, how the Australian sporting system works. Because so many sports organisations think that they're little rocks, little islands, and that no one else shares their pain or their, you know, their problems. And it's, what I've observed is that they all have the same problems in varying degrees. So it's, it's that which I can bring uh, to, to what I do at, at whatever level. And that's, that's what I also really enjoy. Mm. With with a, a large amount, I've got to say, from having known you, of of empathy and and encouragement, and I think that's very important too. And I just want to perhaps finish up by asking you, what would be your advice to say you've got an athlete coming through that wants to follow your pathway? How do they do that? Well, well, I feel I, I think I think the pressure on athletes now is so intense. You know, I, I was around in the good old days where I could work and train at the same time. I had a life in parallel. And I think that that, that balance has always been incredibly important for me. And it's, you know, it's what I still do. I, despite the fact that I'm doing all these things, I am in balance. And I think that, that if, you, if you can find that somehow, and going back to what I said earlier, control the controllables. Don't worry too much about what you can't control. Get an education. I don't know. I have never been asked about advice <laughs> that I would give. That's quite, quite challenging. So really it comes down to educating yourself, giving yourself a backup and perhaps uh, enrolling in, yeah, in Margaret Foster's giving course. Some, giving some opportunities. <laughs> and also be, be willing to learn mm. as well from those who've been before not not to make too many assumptions about what you do or don't know mm. but just be really open to learning and absorbing and i was having this conversation last night with uh, someone who's older than me he and i both said well there weren't governance training programs around you know when we started and certainly wasn't when i was around in the you know, mid 
late 80s, so I just had to suck it all up and learn it all by myself. Mm. And I still think there's a, an opportunity to do that. If you have a thirst for knowledge and you find something that you're interested in, and, and perhaps not wait, not expect everything to happen immediately, but wait until you find out what you really like doing. And as I said before, where I am now is really a confluence of so much that I have done over a long period of time. When I gave up the law, I wasn't, I was just happy to give it away. I had a plan, but that was plan A that didn't come off. Now then I worked myself into what I'm now doing. Had I really thought about it some time ago, it would have been obvious, mm. but I didn't. So here I am now. I could have done this 10 years ago, but I'm not. And here you are now, and uh, what a long way you've come, but I can't wait to see what you're going to continue to do into the future. Margo Foster, thank you so much for spending some time with us on Trailblazers, and, and congratulations on everything and all the best for what's still coming up this year. Lovely. It's been an absolute pleasure to have a chat, and um, thank you very much for having me.